The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. All right, if you guys got your Bibles, Book of Esther, Old Testament. Um, just so I know how much groundwork to do, uh, has anyone not been here for any Esther? Don't worry, I won't judge you. Dang it, I was hoping we could all look at him and... Never mind, I'm just kidding. Uh, okay, so everyone's been here for some Esther, so everybody gets kind of a, a little bit of feel. Cool. I don't need to do too much groundwork. Um, so it's our last week in Esther. It's been a four-week series, which is um, not a lot of time to cover 10 chapters. And unfortunately, I, I went kind of slow. So tonight we get to go through five chapters, which is going to be great. Um, don't worry, we're not going to read them all, because if we did, we'd all be asleep. Um, but we are going to cover five chapters. Uh, here's the game plan, okay? I've got to have a game plan. Uh, I'm going to give you guys like the 10,000 foot view of the book of Esther, including the chapters we haven't gone through yet, um, just so you guys can really get kind of a grasp for the story. Okay, this is like, this is an epic story. I don't know if you guys noticed, but this is an epic story. I mean, this could be a movie. It could be a play. I think it was a movie, um, a really bad one, actually. Uh, this could be, I mean, this is an epic story. And, there, and, and so I really want us to if there's two things I could get you to understand out of this book, one would just be to get the story, because it's really cool, and the other thing would be to understand the gospel. Uh, so we're going to do those two things tonight. We're going to spend the first few minutes, um, by few I mean ten, uh, looking at the overview of the book, and then we're going to go and we're going to zoom in on a couple of scenes from the chapters we have yet to cover, uh, have yet to cover and, and look, at, uh, look at the gospel. So having said that, um, let's pray, and then we'll get, we'll get to where God... Lord, I never really feel um, capable or worthy um, or like I've studied enough or like I know enough, God, to get up here, and I know that's exactly how you want me to feel. Um, Because tonight, Lord, we're not interested in what I have to say. I'm really not even interested in anything that I've written on my notes unless it's inspired from you. Uh, What we are interested in is the supernatural words of life that you breathe. We're interested, God, in the words that hit us in the deepest parts of our hearts. We're interested in, in the truths that stir us up to repentance and stir us up to good works and humility. Um, Lord, we're interested in understanding the gospel and the different facets of it. Lord, we're, we're, we're interested in, in, in beginning to know you better and to have a more personal understanding of what you've done for us and who you are. So God, I pray that you would just push me aside tonight, that I would not get in the way of what you might want to say and what you might want to do. And I pray that tonight we could just kind of put a big bow on Esther, Lord, and just keep it, that it would be a gift, Lord, that we could understand your grace and the gospel through this, uh, really, this amazing story. So I pray for clarity, clarity of thought, clarity of speech, and uh, I just need your help, Jesus, in your name, amen. All right, so the book of Esther, you guys ready for this? We're going to fly over it. Uh, and try to get the biggest grasp of it we can. Chapter one, don't worry, we're not gonna read it. Chapter one, uh, we met King Xerxes. If you guys remember, this book of Esther takes place, uh, takes place in a place uh, called Persia. Um, the ancient world essentially was ruled by one nation. That nation was called Persia, and that nation was ruled by one man, and that was Xerxes. Uh, and we meet, we meet him in chapter one. We first get introduced to King Xerxes by him throwing a huge six-month open bar party, okay? Uh, for six months, the guy just 
literally wants everyone to see how much money he has, how much alcohol he has, how much power he has for literally for six months. He invites all of the people of importance. That's in chapter one. Um, we learned about King Xerxes that he has a God complex. If you guys remember that, he literally thought he was God, that he was a deity. Uh, and then later on in the chapter, Queen Vashti, okay, another one of the characters in the book, Queen Vashti, king wanted, the king wanted her to come and sort of parade herself in front of his drunk friends. She said, no way. So uh, obviously, the right thing to do, right? No. Uh, was to divorce her, kick her to the side? No. He goes and gets counsel from some teenagers, which is a bad idea. Uh, they tell him the best thing to do, uh, or maybe it wasn't teenagers. He gets counsel from some, from some dumb people. They tell him the best thing to do would be make an example out of his wife, so he divorces her, takes away all of her power, all of her finance, all of that stuff. Uh, just kind of a dumb thing to do. Chapter two, uh, he, a few years have passed, he feels a little lonely, he's got his tail kicked by the Greeks. Um, if you guys remember the story of the 300 Spartans that took place. Um, so he decides he needs to get another wife through more awesome counsel that he gets from someone else. So he decides that he is going to scour all of his land for young girls. He's going to increase his harem by hundreds, builds up an, a huge amount of young girls, and then he, night by night, decides which one is going to be his queen, pretty much based on carnal reasoning. What an awesome guy. This is how we get introduced to one of the key stars. I know, John, it's there. It's just in the book, okay? Um, it's rated R. I talked about that earlier. This book is rated R. Uh, so this is how we meet Queen Esther, okay? She's a young girl. She's a Jewish girl. No one knows that she's Jewish. This is like a secret identity, uh, and she gets selected to be part of the harem, Okay, uh, along with Queen Esther, we also meet a very important character who we're gonna primarily talk about tonight, and that's Mordecai. Mordecai was the cousin of Queen Esther. He was quite a bit older than her, and Queen Esther was actually an orphan. So because she was an orphan, he actually adopted her uh, as sort of like his adopted daughter. Um, Mordecai was also Jewish, and they were called exiled Jews. Okay, what that means is, is that at one point in time, the Jews were taken out of their homeland by the Babylonians and spread all over the ancient world. Um, a remnant returned and a remnant didn't. This is the remnant that didn't. They stayed in Persia. They stayed with the Gentiles. That's who Mordecai is. Uh, in chapter two, we see Mordecai finding out this plot to kill the king, and he tips off Esther, who tips off the king, and the king's life is saved, and we'll kind of come back to that a little bit tonight. comes into play in our story. Chapter three, uh, the king decides that he needs to promote a right-hand man, so he promotes a guy named Haman. Everybody say Haman. Okay, Haman is the, yeah, boo. Haman is the Agag guy. Everybody say Agag guy. Yeah, that one wasn't so smooth, right? Uh, Haman was an Agagite. He was from the uh, line of Agag, who was a mortal enemy of the Jews. King Xerxes decides he's going to make him his right-hand man, puts him literally with basically all the power uh, below the king. And guess who doesn't like that? Mordecai does not like that. Mordecai, knowing his heritage, understanding the feud between the Jews and the Agagites, decides that he will not bow to Haman, refuses to bow to him in the king's gate, Haman gets mad because he was a prideful guy. He gets so mad, in fact, that he goes to the king and says, I would like to uh, actually pay to have all of the Jews wiped out. Women, children, babies, etc. So will you write up a letter to all of the provinces, put your signet ring on it, send it out, and we're going to destroy all the Jews. That's what Haman did. He is the bad guy, okay, big time. Haman's a bad guy. So chapter 4. 
Mordecai, one of our main characters, catches wind that all of the Jews are going to die. He goes into this protesting mood. He begins to, to, to rip his clothes and wear sackcloth and ashes. This is what Jews did when they mourned and protested something uh, because he knows all of their people are about to be murdered, um, and he has to do something about it. So he sends word to Queen Esther, who now is living in the palace, uh, who never sees the king, but she is the queen, technically, sends word to Esther and asks for help. She's his last lifeline, okay? She is the only option for advocacy in the case of the Jews. They have no voice. They have no way to get the king's ear. The only way they can be saved is through Queen Esther. So they have this conversation uh, via eunuch, uh, which is how they would communicate, kind of like cell phones nowadays. They had a eunuch. That they was, that's not funny. Um, anyway, so they're communicating because uh, that's just how it works. Uh, they're communicating, and basically they're pleading for Esther to do something. Take control. Save the people. They're all going to die. Something's got to happen. Queen Esther initially reacts with fear. She says, I can't just go into the king's um, court and just walk up to him and ask for something or for, for a favor because he could literally chop my head off. That's how it worked with the king. You didn't just walk in without being invited. There was literally a guy with an axe that would stand behind the king, and if you weren't invited and he didn't want you there, your head was gone. So she's like, I can't do this. It's terrifying. He gives some sobering words to her. He says, hey, look, you got to do this. Uh, God, if you don't do it, someone else is going to come in and do it, but you need to do it. Um, he, he, basically, he basically talks her in it. She says, okay. So doesn't matter what happens to me. I'm going to the king. I'm going to go ask him to save God's people. Chapter 5. You guys following? Is this, is this, okay, okay. Uh, chapter 5, Esther goes before the king. She finds great favor in the eyes of the king, which is great. I mean, she gets to keep her head, okay? Um, she finds great favor with the king. He says, hey, babe, up to half my kingdom is yours. You can take it, whatever it is that you want. She says, great, here's what I want to do. I want to have a feast, Okay, I'm going to throw a party, and I want you to come, and I want Haman to come, and then I'm going to talk to you about what I want there. Okay? Um, then Haman hears about the party. He's stoked. He's excited to come. He feels like he's special for getting uh, like this exclusive invite, but he's also very upset at Mordecai. He goes home and decides that he's going to uh, basically plot how he's going to murder, uh, how he's going to execute, I should say, Mordecai. Chapter 6, this is where we haven't studied yet, okay, so this isn't review. Chapter 6, the king wakes up at night, he cannot sleep, okay, he's lost sleep. God, I believe, it doesn't say this, but I believe God was stirring in his heart and in his mind, putting something um, of remembrance for him to look into. He gets up and he remembers that Mordecai, early in the book, if you remember, Mordecai saved his life, and nothing was ever done to reward him, nothing was ever done to honor him, and he goes and he looks at the records and he sees that this happened, and he realizes that this is not, this, this ought not to be. So King Xerxes decides that he's going to honor Mordecai. The next morning he summons Haman. Haman is what? The Agagite, right? The bad guy. Haman comes in. He thinks he's the man. He's the right-hand man to the king. The king summons him. He comes up and he says, Haman, what should I do to honor my best man? What should I do to honor my best servant? And Haman, of course, thinks the king's talking about him. And he says here, and he lists off all these things. We'll look at those a little more in depth. He lists off all these things that he thinks the king should do for him. And then at the end of it, the king drops the bomb. He says, great, I want you to go do all those things for your mortal enemy, Mordecai. And you can imagine King Haman, or King Haman, you can imagine Haman's stomach just drops. Are you kidding me? I have to go parade my mortal enemy through the streets on the king's horse wearing the king's crown, being honored by the king as the king's best servant. He goes home, rants to his wife like we all do. He's furious. He's embarrassed. Uh, she has a great idea. She, she, uh, 
er, no, that was earlier. She, it was her idea to, to hang him in the first place. What a great wife. Uh, chapter 7, Esther throws her feast. Okay, Esther throws her feast. Mordecai now is in great standing with the king. Uh, at this feast, she makes her request to the king. She asks to pardon God's people. She also, at this time, this is a huge moment for her, she comes out with the fact that she's Jewish. She comes out with the fact that she's related to Mordecai, um, which, is, which is great. She's actually becoming who she was supposed to be all along. She also reveals Haman, the Agagite, right? She reveals his plots and what he had done and how, um, how he, even though the king signed off on it, uh, and how he had, had reasoned uh, within himself to destroy all the Jews. Um, so the king's furious, Okay, he's furious, he's steaming. He goes out to his garden for some fresh air, whatever, and while he's going out there, Haman knows that his neck is on the line. Okay, so he goes and he's, he, he drops to the couch where Esther is sitting to beg for his life. Meanwhile, Xerxes comes in and sees him sitting on the couch with his wife and he's like, that guy's trying to, uh, try, trying to assault my wife, he's gone, he's dead. End of Haman, okay? He gets hung on the noose that was designed for Mordecai. Okay, that's poetic, right? Haman's gone, Haman's done. Chapter 8, the queen begs the king to save the Jews. She begs the, queen, the king to save the Jews. Esther, er, the king says this, look, I can't revoke what I've already ordered. I've already sent the letters, but what I can do is I can give a new order, and that is to allow the Jews to fight back, okay? To allow the Jews to fight back. He says, here's my signet ring. Go right up, drop the letters, you and Mordecai. Whatever it is that you want to command, I put my signet ring of approval on it, and they go and do just that. So the Jews now have work to do. Now it's time for them to defend themselves, okay? In chapter, uh, um, in chapter 9, Mordecai sort of becomes like the leader of the Jews, and he unites all the Jews together. They, they, they come together, they go out and seek out the people that were going to destroy them, and they actually are victorious. First, they seek out 500 men and slay them, and then it says they actually seek out 75,000 in totality of the people that were seeking to destroy them and slay them all. Okay, they had to go to work. Then Esther requests, requests Xerxes to slay also the sons of King Haman. I told you this book is rated R. It's pretty brutal. Uh, on the 14th day, after the Jews are done fighting, after they've uh, secured their salvation, on the 14th day they rest and they feast. And that day, even to this day, is celebrated by the Jews as the Feast of Purim. Okay, they celebrate the salvation of God's people through Mordecai and through Esther. Chapter 10 is the happily ever after. Mordecai and Esther become great leaders to their people. Um, I think I'm feeding back a little bit. Maybe just, maybe just bring me down a tad. Um, so Mordecai and Esther become great leaders to their people. That's the end of the book. Cool story, right? Crazy story. You guys got to go read it on your own too because that was the abridged. That was the 10,000 foot view. Now, having said all that, there's a few things I want to, to sort of zoom in on tonight, okay? Um, we're going to finish this book exactly the way we started it, and that is just the gospel. How do we find the gospel in this book? Parenthetically, I got to say, I love preaching to you guys because I feel like the only expectation I have is to preach the gospel. <laughs> I don't feel like I have to give you self-help or lots of wisdom or lots of ideas. I just, you love to hear the gospel, and that's what I love to preach, so that's what we're going to do tonight, if you guys are cool with that. The gospel is multifaceted. Understand what that means? If you look at a diamond, it has different facets. That means you can look at it from different angles and understand different um, aspects of its beauty. Okay, and that's what I love about the gospel is that we get to just simply take in different aspects of the same truth 
and it just reveals just how beautiful it is. So tonight we're gonna look at three aspects of the gospel that I believe are very clearly pictured in the chapters that we just sort of blew through. And the cool thing is, the good news is, and this never happens for me, they all start with A, right? I didn't even do that on purpose. I was like, hey, these all start with A. I've always wanted to be that guy that could make things start with A, um, or, or with A letters. So they all start with A, um, so I should get an A for that. Um, here they are. The first one is that we are, and if you're taking notes, you can write these down. The first one is that we are adorned. Okay, we are adorned. The second one is, and we'll go through these, is that we are avenged. And the third one is, is that we are assured. So those are going to be the three facets of the gospel that we're going to take in tonight. So if you guys are ready to get to work, let's do it. The first one is that we are adorned. So I want you to, to, to get in your Bibles on, in Esther and take a look at chapter 6, verse 6 through 11. We're going to zoom in on one of the scenes that we just talked about. Um, and kind of zoom in on it a little bit here. Verse 6 of chapter 6 says, So Haman came in and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? Okay, so this is the scene where uh, the king is going to honor Mordecai, and so he calls Haman in, and he says, okay, Haman, how should I honor my best servant? Haman, of course, being arrogant, says uh, exactly what he thinks should be done for himself. Okay, so this is kind of fun. This is kind of interesting. I want you to look, just pay close attention when you look at verses 7 through 9 um, and, and see if you can see what the specific things are he asks for. Uh, verse 7, Haman said to the king, here's what he wants him to, to do to honor him. He says, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. Let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. And let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor. Let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. So this is Haman's request. He thinks the king's gonna honor him, and he says, here's what you should do to honor me, essentially. Here's the things that you should do. There's four things that he says. The first one is, he says, you should clothe the one that you're going to honor, a.k.a. me, Haman says. You should clothe me with robes of the king. Clothing that the king has worn. Okay, that means that you should make me look for this honoring ceremony like the king. Like I have the status of the king. Now why is Haman concerned about that? Why does he want that? I think there's, I think there's a couple of reasons. I think the first one is because he's uncontent with his position. He's uncontent with his dress. He's uncontent with the way that he is perceived, and he wants to be more important. So he's requesting the king, make me look more important. Make me have better apparel. This is, a, this is the first issue of four that we see in this little chunk here. When Haman asks, we see four issues that, that, that humans all struggle with. The first one is the self-image issue. All of us struggle with these four things. The first one is the self-image issue issue. It's the issue that says, I'm not okay with the version of me that people see. I'm not okay with the version of me that people see. Now, we think so much, just like Haman, we think so much about how people perceive us, how people view us, how people look at us. And it, it, a lot of times it shows up in things like how we dress, what kind of car we drive, what kind of house we live in, okay? Um, think about it. Some people try really hard to look successful, 
Okay, so they charge up the credit cards, they get a nicer car than they can afford, um, they wear clothes that are nicer than they can afford, they want everyone to think that they are successful. What they're really doing is they're wanting everyone to think that there's something they're not. Okay, some people want to look like they don't care. You know the don't care people? Um, they try really hard to look like they don't care. A lot of them are on the streets of Ashland. Um, if, you, if you walk around, they're like, they're like the homeless, but it's like, it's, like, it's like a style for them. The style is to look like you never shave or never bathe. That's the style, and they try very hard to look like that style. Um, some people try to look really rich. Some people try to look really poor. Um, some people just try to look like everyone else. Um, some people just kind of like, if I could just fit in enough to not stand out. Um, some people try to stand out. They wear just crazy stuff so they can stand out. Some people try to look smart. Some people try to look dumb. Some people try to look athletic. Some people try to show uh, their political system. Some people try to show their hobbies through what they wear. We're all super concerned, especially in the West, with how we present ourselves. And what that really means is, is how we're perceived, how people see us. And, and the only reason for this is because we aren't okay with who we are. The reason we spend billions of dollars in our country in the West on how we look and how people perceive us is because we're uncontent with who we are. If we weren't uncontent with who we are, we wouldn't care what we drive or what we wear or how people perceive us or what our house looks like. We wouldn't care if we were content. But by the, the fact that we put so much into that proves that we do care. Now, why do we care? Why do we care what people think? Because we're ashamed of who we truly are. We're ashamed of who we truly are. Now, I want you to go back to the garden with me and think about this, okay? In the garden, Adam and Eve were what? They were naked. They were unashamed. They walked with God. They had nothing to hide. They were okay with who they were. And then something happened. Well, sin, right? Sin entered into the scene. Man was cursed. Disconnect between God and man. And what's the first thing that they do? They sow fig leaves, to try to hide from the Lord, and to try to, because they're ashamed, essentially, they're ashamed of who they are. Now, this, this isn't ultimately about clothes. Follow me on the symbolism here, okay? Um, they're, they're not okay with who they are after the fall. Before the fall, they're fine with who they are. After the fall, they're not. Why? Because they know there's something wrong. The reason we try to hide who we really are, whether that be um, faking being okay when we have issues in our life, whether that be making it look like we have more money than we really do, um, whether it be making it look like our life is happier than it is, the reason we do that is because we don't want people to see that we have issues, that we have problems. Just like Adam and Eve all of a sudden realize, hey, something's wrong with us, so we have to hide ourselves. Something's wrong with us, so we have to cover ourselves up. It's kind of interesting. Now, think, think about this too, this it's just something I was thinking about this morning. Why, why in heaven, why don't we go back to the Edenic state? Why don't we go back to just being naked? Why don't we do that? It says in Revelation that we're going to be wearing robes. It's interesting because it's almost like God doesn't want to take us back to the garden. His never, intent was never to go back to the garden. We don't go back to a garden, we go back to a city, Right? We don't go back to, just, just like Adam and Eve were, we go back to wearing robes. And I think the reason is, is because God doesn't want us to just simply be okay with who we are. He wants us to be okay with who he makes us. And in heaven, he wants us to remember the separation that we once had with him. And he wants to be the one to clothe us. The gospel is not that we would just be okay with who we are. Do we get that crammed on our throat? You just love who you are, be okay with who you are. Now, I'm, I think we should be secure in who God made us, and I think we should be fine with, 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 with just who God made us to be, but at the same time, we're broken. That's why we try to hide. That's why we spend so much money on changing our image and so much thought about our image. It's because we don't like who we are. And the reason we don't like who we are is because we're broken, <laughs> because we're fallen. 
That's the reason. Now, this can be something that can drive us to want to be clothed by God and say, I want your identity. I want you to see me, uh, see Christ on me. The second thing Haman asks for, not only does he ask for clothing, I know it was kind of long, but just some thoughts. Um, the second thing he asks for is a horse. He says, clothe me in the king's garments. And then he says, I want to ride the king's horse. Now, the horse is a symbol here of power. When the king rode a horse, it meant it was wartime. It meant a symbol of, of power, that he, was, uh, that he wielded great power. It's interesting that Haman is, once again, uncontent with his position of power, that he wants more power. Now, why does Haman want to look more powerful? Because he's insecure about his weakness. He wants to look more powerful because he's insecure about his weakness. Why do we want to be more powerful? Why do we want higher position in life a lot of times? Because we're insecure about our weakness. Because we're insecure about our weakness. And human power, ultimately, isn't it just sort of an illusion? I mean, there really is no such thing. <laughs> like, we have no power. God is in control. The most power-hungry people are usually the most insecure people. I've just found that to be true in life. But listen, the gospel is not to find power in yourself or to give the illusion of power. The gospel is to find weakness in yourself and therefore strengthen him, is it not? It's not to find power in yourself, to muster up power in yourself, to be powerful, to, to rise to powerful position. It's to find weakness. That's why John the Baptist said, I must decrease that he may increase. That's why it says his strength is perfected in what? Weakness. The gospel is not found in more power. It's not found in being adorned. It's in wearing clothes that make you fake. It's not about having an image that makes you look fake. It's not about having more power, more position, which is the second one, the, sec or the third thing. The third thing he asks for, besides the clothes, besides the horse, then he says, and on whose head a royal crown is set. He says, put the king's crown on me. Okay, this is indicative of position. He not only wants more power, not only wants more uh, prestige, he also wants a better position. He wants to be higher up, more thought of. Why is our position never high enough? Why do we always want higher position? I talked about it last week, but it's because we want to justify our existence. If I'm an important person, then I feel like I know why I was put here. I was put here because I'm important, because I contribute something, because I'm valuable, and therefore I've justified my existence. What Haman is modeling for us is the third issue that we all struggle with, and that is wanting position to justify our existence and to, to, to show ourselves and to show everybody that we deserve to live, that we have a reason to be here. But the gospel, again, I'm going to say this over and over, the gospel is not attempting to prove ourselves or to give ourselves value or to justify our existence. It's finding all of our value in his position. It's not achieving a higher position so I can say, look, I'm valuable, I'm important, look, I'm, the, ma I'm the, the boss, I'm the manager, I'm the CEO, whatever. It's about saying he is valuable. His position is what gives me joy. His value and his glory is what gives me the breath I need. And then the fourth one, and I think this is the most, for me, I guess, the, the most clear one that Haman asks for, he asks for affirmation. Okay, so the, the fourth issue, he's got self-image issue, he's got a power issue, he's got a position issue, and then it, he reveals that he has an affirmation issue. That means that he wants someone to affirm him. It says, and let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. 
Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor. Let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city. So Haman says, not only do I want the king's robe, not only do I want to be on the king's horse, not only do I want the king's crown, but I want your best person to adorn me so that it gives it validation. I want the, the best of the best person to do it so that everyone knows I'm for real. His best man dressed me in that, and his best man paraded me through the city. That's an affirmation issue. Haman's got affirmation issues. He needs someone to validate him. He needs someone to tell him that he's important. That's why we all have daddy issues, because we all need affirmation, and we all, boo-hoo, my daddy didn't tell me I was special enough when I was a kid, and that's why I have all these problems, and, and if anyone has those problems, my heart goes out to you, I'm not belittling that, but a lot of times in our culture, we crutch on, well, my parents just didn't tell me I was good enough, or, or I didn't get enough affirmation, or, or, or my, my wife, my husband, they don't tell me that I'm good enough anymore, or, or whatever. We're looking for this world to affirm us and make us feel like we're special, like we're important. The gospel is not finding a person to affirm us. The gospel is not working hard so your boss can say, you're the man. The gospel is not working hard so your parent can say, I'm so proud of you. So your mom can say, oh, that's my boy. So your coach can say, great job. That's not the gospel. It's not finding affirmation in people. It's finding worth in the one who chose you and affirmed you before the foundations of the world. Okay, I'm not special because someone said I did a good job or affirmed me. I'm special because God chose me before the foundations of the earth. Not because I'm awesome, but because he's gracious. So again, what Haman is revealing here is these four issues that all of us deal with. And it's interesting that as he's clawing for these things for the king, hey, how about you give me this? And hey, how about this? And how about this? He's just giving us a perfect picture of all the things that we're all clawing at the world for every single day. I want people to see me this way. I want to go in a higher position of power. I want to have more control over my life. Those are all the things that we all claw for. I want someone to tell me that I'm good at something. I want people to think that I'm amazing, think that I'm special. Now, let me say this. Those things are not wrong to want, okay? If you want affirmation, and if you want position, and if you want people to think of you as a certain way, that's actually not wrong. Can I say that? That's not wrong. What's wrong is when we look to the wrong thing to fulfill those. You see, God actually planted those things in you. He planted those desires in you, just like Haman has, to want to climb the ladder, to want to find satisfaction in your position, to want to find people that validate your existence and tell you that you're awesome, to, to want to improve your image and make people think that you're better than you are. He put all those things in there so that he could fulfill them for you so that he could fix those for you. Romans 13, 4 says this, says, but put on what? The Lord Jesus Christ. We don't need to put on a newer car. We don't need to put on better clothes to make us look different. We don't need to put on more affirmation. We don't need to put on in a higher position. We don't need to put on more power, more control in our life. We need to put on Christ. And the only way we're ever gonna be satisfied is when we say, he's enough for me. And he fulfills these things for me. I love it, verse 10, then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai. <laughs> oh, he thought he had it made, and now he's gotta go do all those things for his mortal enemy. So who are we in that story? Are we Mordecai, or are we Haman? I would say this, by nature, we're Haman. We're clawing at this world constantly for more position. We're clawing at this world constantly for more control, for more power, 
for better self-image. So by nature, we're Haman. But by grace, we're Mordecai. By grace, we are paraded through town. It says we are vessels of honor set up to glorify God and his strength and how, what, what an amazing workman he is and how much he, grace he has that, that we're paraded and we're clothed and we're adorned like a bride and we're thought much of. <laughs> so we deserve what Haman got, but by grace we are Mordecai. Everybody tracking with that? So what's the first A? I already forgot. We're adorned. We're adorned. <laughs> it's pretty sad when I have my notes in front of me and I forgot. Okay, second A. Here we go. Second A. We are avenged. A big piece of this story is about the justice being served against those that would oppose and oppress the Jews. Okay? It's a big part of this story. There's three essential enemies that are avenged in this story, okay? The first one's really obvious. You're, you're gonna know that one right away, okay? If you had to guess, Haman, right? Haman is the obvious number one enemy seemingly against the Jews. He's, from the beginning of the story, he's been out to get him, to see him destroyed, to see him done, to see him put to death. He's bent on it. And Haman is a fantastic picture of one of our most obvious enemies as Christians, okay? I don't know if you guys know this, but the second you sign up to be a Christian, I don't think you sign up, but the second you get saved, <laughs> um, you are instantly inviting yourself to be pursued by a very powerful enemy that wants nothing more than to seek your complete destruction. And all of us are targets. And the closer you get to Jesus, the more of a target that you are. If you guys know that. Okay, so just like the Jews had Haman, who was really out to destroy them, really out to get them, no matter what, we have an enemy too, okay? And he is out to destroy us. He is out to get us. First Peter 5, 8 says that he is like a devil, or the devil is like a lion that prowls around seeking someone to devour, okay? I don't think he just said that for fun. I think it, he meant it, that literally we have an enemy that's seeking to devour us, and we have to understand that reality as believers, but just like in the story, just like in the story, how they got vengeance against Haman. What happened to Haman? He was hung on the noose that was meant for Mordecai. Just like they got vengeance, we get vengeance against each of these enemies. The first one being Satan, right? We know the end of the story. Jesus defeats Satan. What a fantastic picture of that that is. Now, the gospel is that Jesus conquered this enemy for us. Okay, the, the gospel is that Jesus conquered this enemy. How did he do it? Now, we're gonna get a little theological here, so just bear with me. How did Jesus conquer the enemy? He did it in three ways. The first way is he did it on the cross. What did he do on the cross? He took away everything that Satan could possibly accuse you of. Okay, Satan is the accuser. You know that? In Zechariah, there's a, there's a vision there that shows Satan and pictures him as the accuser. He's there accusing you. That's why we need an advocate to come in, Jesus Christ, right? Jesus comes in and takes away everything that Satan could possibly accuse you for. That's the first way that he destroys that enemy. The second way is through the spirit. Because Satan is the father of what? Lies. He's the father of lies. That means that he distorts and twists the truth. He can't distort and twist the truth when the Holy Spirit is within you discerning the truth. When you have the scriptures and the spirit there to translate and to, to, to allow you to understand the scriptures. So he defeats him there. And the third way he defeats him is simply by God's sovereignty. Because if you read Revelation, it's done. Satan is finished. What did Jesus say on the cross? It's finished. What did Genesis 3 promise? 
that he would crush the head of the snake, and he has been crushed. So that enemy is defeated. Okay, that's the obvious enemy in this story. Who's the, the little bit less obvious enemy in this story? Okay, we have Haman. The little bit less obvious, but probably more prevalent, is death. The Jews fear death. I mean, that's their enemy. That, that's, that's what they're fighting against, and that's the same thing that we're all fighting against, okay? We all die. We're all gonna die. 100% death rate, right? We know that. You can look up the statistics. We're all gonna die. When Adam fell, we were introduced to one of our greatest enemies. The Bible talks about it all the time, both physically and spiritually. Death is one of the biggest enemies, not only of Christians, but just of people. We all have to struggle with it. The world, if you haven't noticed, is in a state of decay. Okay, it's not getting better, it's getting worse. Things are getting worse. Everything's getting worse. We're all dying. We're all getting older. Okay, we're all getting sore every morning. Our backs hurt more. Okay, I'm experiencing this. We're all in a state, a trajectory of death. Not only physical death, but also spiritual death. Ephesians 2 says we were dead in our trespasses and sins. That means that we are unable to discern spiritual things apart from being reborn. It means that we're unable to produce life. Okay, so death is a huge enemy. Not only do we have Satan, we also have death that we're up against. Now, the gospel is, here's the facet, the gospel is that Jesus conquered death. That he conquered death. How did he conquer death? Three ways. I got all kinds of like numbers today. I don't know why I got lists. Three ways that he conquered. <laughs> if you're note takers, you should be loving this. Three ways that he conquered death. Number one, by removing the curse. When Adam fell, we were cursed. We were disconnected. Jesus conquered death by removing that curse for the believer. Now we have connection through the, to the Father through Jesus Christ. Secondly, he conquered death by raising from the grave, by being the first one to go to heaven that many could follow, as the scriptures say, the firstborn of many. That doesn't mean created, it means raised, the first one to go to the Father. And thirdly, he conquered death by sending his spirit to give us new life. We were dead we just learned this in Ephesians. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God who is rich in mercy, who loved us with the love with which he loved us, right? <laughs> it says, he's given us new life. We're born again. Listen to this, 1 Corinthians 15, 54. When the perishable, okay, perishable means dying, okay? When the perishable, that's, that's us, puts on the imperishable, that's eternal, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, and it quotes this, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, you guys heard this before? Where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death of sin and the power of sin is the law. Jesus has swallowed up death. He has conquered death for you and me. What does that mean for us? It means we don't die. Your last breath is your first one. Okay? That's good news. That's a facet of the gospel. Not only has he conquered Satan, not only has he conquered death, but there's actually a worse enemy. Did you know that? There's actually a, a worse one. There's a third enemy. I, I personally, I see this one as the hardest enemy that Jesus had to conquer for me, and that's myself. Myself. In this story, it's funny. Okay, obviously, we have, we have Haman is the bad guy, and obviously we have death, but there's a third enemy that's subtle. You know who it is? It's Mordecai. Why, I mean, why, why are all of the Jews having to die in the first place? Because Mordecai was a prideful dude. He wouldn't stink and bow in respect to Haman. Now, I, I, we weren't there, okay? It was 2,400 years ago. But it seems to me when I read the story that Mordecai was pretty prideful. 
and that he risked the life of thousands of his people simply because of his pride. (laughs) And and when you really look at it, it's like, man, Mordecai, you were kind of to blame for this thing. And God saved you. But you were kind of to blame for this thing. I don't know about you guys, but the biggest enemy that I fight as a Christian is not Satan, it's not death, (laughs) although those things are tough. It's myself. The Bible has different names for that, okay? One of them is uh, the flesh, okay? Another one is the old man. That's what Paul talks about. He says, I was the old man. It's one of our greatest hindrances in Romans seven fifteen. Paul talks about it. He's just like kind of venting. And he's like, it's so irritating. I do the things I don't want to do, and I don't do the things I want to do. Why? Because I have an old man, and I have a new man, and they're warring with each other. That's the greatest enemy for most, if not all, believers is ourself, is our flesh, is our desires, the things that we can't seem to get away from wanting that cause us to sin. Now the gospel is, the good news is, God combats and transforms that enemy too. Not only does he conquer death, and not only does he conquer Satan, but he conquers ourself, our desires, the desires that ought not to be there. How does he do it? Well, first of all, Theological word, through regeneration. Through regeneration. That means that we're reborn. That means that we have a new nature, a new set of desires. The deepest parts of my desires are now completely new, and they align with his desires. And the second way, we're all still doing it right now, it's called sanctification. That means that he's just daily by daily, like we learned Sunday, chiseling and chiseling and making us into his likeness and taking away that old man and making us more like the new man. So, conclusion for, for God being our avenger is that he wages war through Christ in every area of our enemies that we don't even realize is there. He has waged war on death, he has waged war on Satan, he has waged war on our flesh, and he still is. He's fighting for us, and we are more than conquerors, right, through Christ. He fights our battles for us, and he has fought our battles for us. That's good news. So, not only are we adorned, there's one facet, right? God has dressed us in glory. And not only we are avenged, God has taken care of our enemies. But lastly, and this one will be quick, we are assured. So if you got Esther open, take a look at chapter 8, verse 5 through 9. Actually, we'll do verse 8. That'll be better. It says, but you may, this is King Xerxes speaking to Queen Esther. He says, but you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king. And seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. So here's the scene, just to kind of zoom in. The queen is, again, just begging the king, can we save my people? Can we save my people? And the king says, yeah, here's my signet ring. Okay, we can't reverse what has already been sent out, but what we can do is send a new order, and that's that the Jews can defend themselves. So he says, here, take my signet ring and go do whatever you want. <laughs> Write whatever you want. Put my signet ring in, and that's going to symbolize, essentially, that, that I agree with it. Now, signet rings were a big deal in that time, okay? Big deal. It, it symbolized, essentially, two things. When you saw a king's seal in an envelope, okay? First of all, it represented all the power of the king, okay? All the power of the king. Secondly, it symbolized that if you open this, you've got to deal with all the power of the king, unless you're the one that's supposed to be opening it. 
Those are the two things that symbolize this, okay? It was to ensure that things got to the person that was intended to get to, and it was to ensure that when it got there, they knew this was from the king. All of his power is represented in that signet. Important thing, and the king says, here, Esther, take it. Take my power, take my signet. This is cool imagery, and this is, this is where I get that we are assured. In Ephesians 1.13, it says, In him, in Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were what? Sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So the gospel is, okay, the gospel is that God has not only adorned us, not only avenged us, but that he has assured us by sealing us with his signet ring. What what, what does that mean for us? It means that we can't be opened by anyone else. If we're opened by anyone else, they deal with the wrath of all the power of the king. And basically what I'm saying is, I don't believe you can lose your salvation because you have a sign on you. You are owned by God. He has stamped his signet of his seal on you and that seal is the Holy Spirit. It also means that all of the power of the one who sealed it is represented on that. That man, we are sealed by a strong God. And here's the last thing I'll say and we'll close with this. There's an interesting thing in the story you read it and you're like, man, it wouldn't have been easier if the king could have just said, okay, you're done, um, you guys are safe, nobody fight with the Jews, okay, but he's, he doesn't say that, does he? He says, I can't reverse this. Says, I can't reverse this. I've already sent the decree, the letters are already right, it's got my signet ring on it. I can't reverse it. So even though, yes, we are assured as Christians, that doesn't mean we don't have to fight. So yes, Mordecai and Esther now have favor with the king, and yes, now they're in this position where they can be great advocates for the Jews, but guess what? The Jews still gotta get up, put their shoes on, grab their spears, and go to war, okay? Now listen, guys. We are assured. We are adorned. We are avenged. But it's still time to put on our shoes and go to war because there's still work to do, and there's still an enemy out there. There's still sin to fight. There is still injustice to fight. This is really helpful for me, okay? We, past tense, were saved from the penalty of sin, right? We are saved from the penalty of sin. We're justified. Present tense, we are being saved from the power of sin, okay? The Holy Spirit is allowing us to have supernatural power over sin, but future tense, we will be saved from the presence of sin. Does that make sense? We're saved from the penalty of sin. We're being saved from the power of sin, but we are not yet saved from the presence of sin. We're not there yet. It's not heaven till it's heaven. We are in this in-between place where, yes, it is finished, but history is yet to play out, and we are called to go to war, just like the Jews. There is a battle to fight We are not yet saved from the presence of sin. We see it every night on the news. We see injustice over and over and over again. Like I talked about last week, we see millions of babies murdered on the altar of convenience. We see this stuff over and over and over again. It's time to go to war. John Piper talks about this wartime mentality. He says, in World War II, you know, everybody was focused on the war effort. It wasn't just the people of the troops. It wasn't just the people that were on the front lines, okay? Everything was focused on that. So if you have extra rubber, you take it in. 
Okay, if you have extra, whatever it is, everything is focused, the, the, the families are suffering, everyone's suffering, everyone's focused on, the, on what, what's happening. It's a wartime mentality, and the problem is, is that sometimes we forget that we're at war. Sometimes we forget that we're pilgrims, and sometimes we forget that there's a job to do, that there's injustice happening, that there are people that are unsaved, that the gospel has not yet been preached to all of the corners of the earth, right? We forget that. This isn't a go earn your salvation thing. This is a, hey, you're saved, let's go to work. There's stuff to do. Second Timothy 2, 1, Timothy says this, he says, you then, my child, speaking to Timothy, like a father would to a son, he says, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others. He says this, share in suffering as what? A good soldier. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Listen, just like the king said, you know what, I can't stop this from happening, but what I am gonna do is I'm gonna empower you to fight. Jesus says, I went to the cross so that you could fight. I went to the cross so you could actually stand a chance so that there's actually things that you can do, so that I can spend, send the Spirit to do greater things even than I did, Jesus says. He empowered us and has empowered us and has called us to go to war. Not with the non-believer. We go to war for the non-believer, to pull him out of the fire, to go to war with the flesh, to go to war with the enemy, to make war. It's not time to sit back. It's not time to sit around. You focus. So, we're adorned, it's good news, right? We're avenged, it's good news, and we're assured, it's good news. Now let's go to work. I'm not gonna, I, I don't have a next page of notes to, to quantify what, I, what that looks like, but it's in your workplace, it's with your non-believing friends, maybe it's in Africa, maybe it's in China, maybe it's local, maybe it's in Hawthorne Park, maybe it's, um, I don't know where it is, maybe it's here, maybe it's serving, but whatever it is, there's stuff to do. And we gotta have that wartime mentality. Amen? Let's all stand. Just pray this in. God, thanks for the book of Esther. It's just really been a cool four-week series. Lord, it's really been fun to uh, just to see your hand of sovereignty through the book of Esther, to see these different characters, that they were real and that you uh, really did work through them, God. Lord, I, I thank you for the gospel, Lord, just how beautiful it is and how many different angles we can look at it from. I thank you so much, Lord, that you've adorned us. God, that we don't have to claw at this world trying to find worth because we simply need to put you on. Lord, I thank you that we don't have to just say, oh, I'm okay with who I am, but we get to get excited about who you're gonna make us and who you are making us into. Thank you for fighting our battles for us, Jesus for going to the cross so that we could go to war in your footsteps, just simply following you around. And thank you that we can have peace tonight and be assured that you've put your seal on us and that all of your power is represented on that seal, Lord. So just thank you for the good news tonight, God. And, and we just pray that you would bless this next series that we do going forward on Wednesday nights, that you would bring new people. Uh, Father, you would bless Awanas as it starts. And God, we love you. We trust you with everything. In Jesus' name. Amen. Don't forget, guys, 6.30 next week in the music seat. We'll see you Sunday.